Hello, and welcome to Everyone Has a Story, talking about mental health. I'm Ekaterina Malievskaya, a co-founder and chief innovation officer of Compass Pathways. Today, we welcome Anisha Graval, a medical oncologist and co-director of clinical research at the Aquilino Cancer Center in Maryland. Manish is a practicing oncologist as well as a researcher. Welcome, Manish, and thank you so much for joining me today. So we've met a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago now. Um, three, three. Three years ago. Gosh, it seems <laughs> it seems longer. It was a two-hour breakfast, and then we met again the same day, right? And quickly discovered how similarly we think about transformative treatments mental health care issues in patient population and you shared your journey as a medical oncologist and you know your experience of taking care of these patients do you want to share with us some of your early thoughts on that yeah i mean i've thought a lot about it and things become sometimes more in focus as you look back i remember in college i was a freshman and i wanted to study philosophy and my father like any good immigrant father said I didn't come to this country for you to be a philosopher. And so I ended up studying medicine and or engineering and then went into medicine, but that itch sort of never went away. There was this always interest in philosophy and psychology, sort of who we are as humans. And then I actually picked a residency at Georgetown where it allowed me to do a master's in philosophy. So I did get my master's and then went to the NIH and did a fellowship in oncology, but also in bioethics. So as I look back, there's been this continued theme of wondering about what else is going on in people's lives. And that's probably what even drew me into oncology was the science, but also, you know, when you have cancer, you're at the crux of sort of what is existence? Why am I here? What did, why did this happen to me? And really the big questions and these worlds that sort of kept separate inside of me, like two different worlds. And the center and this work is almost bringing these two worlds that lived inside of me together. Yeah. Well, I am a physician too, as you know, and very often we focus on just physical aspects of patient care, taking care of the diseases that have so-called hard endpoints. We can measure the tumor size, measure the blood levels, but it's much harder to measure psychological distress or existential distress in patients who are facing death. And I think traditionally physicians shy away from you know, maybe providing psychological support for patients who suffer with terminal illness simply because we don't have enough tools in the toolbox. We don't know how to help these patients. And we focus our attention on something that would make a difference perhaps in physical health, but we're less skilled in psychological support. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And it's even become more clear to me. I think even my journey as an oncologist, being at the NIH, and I can remember even my attendings before we'd go into a patient room and the patient, had, the cancer had progressed. And you can almost taking them see, take a big sigh in and then clenching their teeth and walking in. And then so much of it, you are focused on that aspect. But then when you leave the patient's room, what's going on behind the curtain is so real. And I think it actually, as I look back on it, it really eats away at you because you know there's a huge aspect of their care that you're just not addressing. And so you talk about the things that you can, but there's these huge portions of their existence that you're not touching on and you just sort of walk away from and I think you're right. It's not modeled. We're not taught how to do it. And then we don't have good tools for it. We don't even have good language really around this is what it is. And yet it's such a reality for my patients. And for you as well, right? Yeah, it's something that 
I've been personally interested in, certainly personally, I know myself, you know, to have sadness or experiences of not feeling good and fear and, and to not to be able to talk about them or to express them and just to carry that as a burden and to be able to share that with others and, and deal with it is actually a way to heal. And so I know that from witnessing my patients, but you're right, it certainly starts with my own experience. So it, it's remarkable how the field of oncology or any other medical specialty progressed in 21st century, but the way we support our patients with psychological distress and mood disorders and other mental health issues it remains the same. There has been very little innovation until recently. So Manish, walk us through how you became interested in psychedelics for cancer patients, patients who are facing imminent death or psychological distress due to cancer diagnosis. How did you come about this? I hinted at it a little earlier in terms of my personal interest, but then after being in practice for some time and then stumbling really into the literature around psychedelics, I was so intrigued by the fact that people were claiming that this death anxiety, this depression that patients face is real and that they actually have a tool to address it directly. And I thought it was quite bold for someone to say, this is not a side issue, but this is a major issue and we have something that addresses that. So that really caught something inside of me. So after then our breakfast in London three years ago, you set out to start building a center at the private oncology practice. You know, we're in a standalone cancer center and there is a space downstairs for radiation, a space for medical oncology and chemotherapy infusion. We have a PET scanner. And there really was no dedicated physical space to address with patients' emotional well-being. And so part of it was to really create a, a space to tell cancer patients, we take your emotional suffering seriously, and here is a dedicated purpose-built space to deal with that. And with the intent of conducting psychedelic research within a healing space. One of the funders, you know, he's a patient, his wife actually had cancer and she had died. And I mean, it was really absurd if you think about how we did it. We, so we want to design this and, and we talked to this really great architecture company, it's National Gensler, and, you know, they gave us a price of how much you would do to the design. And this patient's husband, he just wrote a check, said, go ahead and do it with no funding for how we're going to construct it or anything else. And so we just did it one step at a time. And we built this during COVID. And literally the county was closing down because of COVID. And the developer that was working with us was so inspired. He made phone calls on the weekends and got the permit issued before the county closed for COVID. Otherwise, it would have been delayed for months. So tell us what you've seen and what you're learning. So the study that we're conducting is looking at the safety and efficacy of psilocybin therapy in patients with depression. And I think an important aspect of our study is that it is a group preparation, simultaneous administration, and group integration. So virtually all the studies that have been done previously in psychedelic therapy have been two therapists to one participant, and no one has done simultaneous. And combine all of this together. So that's really a novel mechanism, a novel design to have uh, groups support uh, before and after and simultaneous administration during psilocybin. You know, so the study design is that we do an individual preparation, but then there's a group preparation the day before we give patients psilocybin, then patients get psilocybin, and the next day there's group integration, and a week later there's group integration. And a couple of novel things about our study, besides the group and simultaneous approaches, 
everyone had to have a cancer diagnosis. And we allowed different stages because we thought there was end of life distress, but then patients with earlier stages cancer, I saw a lot of suffering and assimilating. And so we wanted a commonality to be depression and allow different stages. And so to be honest with you, not overstating it, it's been incredible. It's been very meaningful for me. I think about all the work that has gone into creating that. And sometimes it feels overwhelming the amount of work it is. But then the day that patients get psilocybin and the next day, every time it happens, I think it's worth it. And, you know, some of the stories, just this last cohort that we had, before we even did the psilocybin, the day before, a couple of the patients, one of them said, this is the first time I've been in a cancer center where I'm getting something that's going to help me feel better and not feel worse. Usually people put IVs in me and I get treatments and I throw up and I feel bad for a week. And the focus actually is on getting me to feel better. And another woman in the same cohort said, you know, I've, I've had three cancers, two surgeries, chemotherapy, and no one has actually sat and talked to me about all these things and how they impacted me. And just that you care enough to do this itself is so helpful. And so that's been very powerful. And really the results have been incredibly powerful. The need is there, but then the impact has been incredible. And it's, it's hard to even fully, I think there's a couple of ways we could talk about it. One would be people really grapple with death. You know, they, uh, they face this thing that has sort of been lurking there for a long time and they're able to make some sense of it. I remember one patient, she's a patient of mine and um, she had a hard experience and it was really grappling with dying. And she told me a couple of days later, after the session, she was at her lake house and, or actually at the lake and it was evening and the sun had just set and the crickets were so loud and it dawned on her, you know, she said, oh, you know, come winter and spring, all the crickets will die and there'll be a whole new crop of crickets in the spring. And she said, when I was born, there was a lot of humans and they all died in my lifetime and I too will die and there'll be a whole new crop of humans. And so she had this sense of like peace and sadness and sort of an acceptance. You know, I could talk to her all day about death is a normal part of life. It's something we have to accept. But for her to pull it inside of herself and make it a reality that she could feel into was a very direct way that I saw how it impacted her. These patients have a common denominator. That is, all of a sudden, their existential threat, threat to, you know, to their life becomes very real, you know, comes in foreground. And it's difficult for these patients to talk to their families, to talk to their friends who essentially expect them to fight and they want them to get better. And there, there's kind of an additional pressure on these patients. Whereas we thought in these groups, they can actually be very real with each other because they all have sort of this shared reality of impending death. How do you see it worked out in reality in, in the study? What were the benefits or drawbacks of this model when patients share their journey from beginning to the end? Well, the study endpoint is safety. And so what I was blown away by was how effective this is, the group aspect of it. You know, and there's several ways to think about that. One, we have two integration sessions. And after the first cohort, and we follow up with them and eight weeks later, and one of the gentlemen on that first study who's pretty quiet said, I just went to war with these women. I can't stop meeting. And so they insisted that we continue to meet after the study was closed. And even now we have regular monthly meetings 
with patients that have completed the study because they want to continue to integrate. And so people that didn't know each other all of a sudden want to continue to meet and talk and support each other. Something that happened in the last cohort, one of the women in the preparatory session, she said, I, I can't share. I don't do group stuff. I don't want to share. And then in the two integrations, she couldn't stop talking and she had so much to share. And so that's really sort of tangible, objective things that I can see of how much the impact of the group is. But I think it's been a surprise or a delight really to see this in action. When the group is really going in integration, they're sharing their stories and caring for each other. And there's not much for us to do. And the deep connection that forms is incredible. And I think there's something really powerful about witnessing another human express their story. And some of these patients, some of these participants, they express out loud something that may have not even articulated to themselves, they put into words. And to have another person hear that, not judge it and receive it, that is profoundly therapeutic. And to experience it, I guess, more than just even see it for myself, has been very powerful. Now, in your study, you, you've included patients not only with terminal cancer, but patients with early stage cancer. And the impact of the session, impact of the treatment was slightly different on such patients. Is that right? What's interesting is that they have depression, but I think appropriately there should be a lot of focus on advanced cancer end of life, but perhaps a dirty little secret or not so secret patients with cancer that have finished treatment, they continue to suffer for a long time and sometimes never assimilate back into life. And I have been really happy and impressed with the impact that's having on patients that are essentially cured of their cancer. And so two cohorts ago or three, we had a gentleman with lymphoma that probably 10 or 12, 15 years from his treatment. And just to see him process that and how much it's changed his life. I remember in the integration session, he said, I realized that that happened to me, but it's not happening to me right now. And I could just put it in the past. And so is that the first time that somebody's told him that it's not happening now? Of course not. But he did it himself in the session. And he said, I just feel unburdened. And in fact, he would say in the integration session, like, I'm not ruminating and it's, it feels unfamiliar. Like, I don't know how to stop. Like, it's, I'm not thinking about it all. I'm not ruminating. It just was a different experience for him. Another person that had a very, very early stage cancer and had been really stuck in fear and unable to move forward to make a decision around treatment a curative treatment, really, almost paralyzed. She was able to, in her session, I mean, she cried literally for almost the entire time, but now she's had essentially life-saving surgery. And so, you know, her Madras score went down, but more importantly, she's a young person that has a lot of life ahead of her, and she, she sought out that. And so these are a couple of examples of participants that had earlier stage disease that had enormous benefit. And in some ways not that it's about healthcare or cost to society, but they have so much life ahead of them that they can contribute and enjoy and be a part of. Yeah. We do see it anecdotally in, you know, clinical trials and recreational use as well. That people report that their relationship with their symptoms change. The symptoms necessarily might not change. The symptoms of depression can come back. The symptoms of OCD can come back. But they have this newly found sense of agency, this kind of separation between themselves and the symptoms. And I think that patients value the sense of agency more than anything. Something that, you know, 
they generate insights, they generate solutions that, you know, potentially translate into change of behavioral and emotional cognitive patterns that are more productive, more adaptive for this particular stage of their lives. So, you know, it's how important it is for patients who live with, you know, terminal diagnosis or life-changing diagnosis to come to terms that this is happening and be real with all aspects of their life. I just wanted to maybe switch gears a little bit. And there are two other groups that are, they, they also part of this ecosystem um, around patients with life-changing diagnosis. And one is families. What's your sense as an oncologist, how this treatment, the outcomes of this treatments affect patient support system, families or friends? Like everything is in an ecosystem and the cancer patient and their diagnosis greatly impacts them, but the caregivers suffer as much. And I can see the impact that it's starting to have. And so, for example, one of the participants, he's young and he, he has cancer. And one of the things that he learned during his journey was his relationship with his mother had changed. And after it, he really faced his death. He literally died during his experience and saw what it would be like in his children around him. And over the integration sessions and talking to him, he went back and talked to his mother and said, I want my old mom back. She said, I'm going to be okay. And I want us to have the relationship that we had before I had this cancer. And so I'm probably going to at some point die from this cancer. But for the time that we have, I want to have that relationship back. So he's almost leading the change in that relationship. And so I think it has an enormous impact on really the, the caregivers. And ultimately, I think, you know, our center is doing psychedelic research, but we also provide a lot of caregiver support. And I think if you don't address the entire ecosystem, then you're not optimizing the conditions for patients to heal and to feel better. You know, one thing I did want to comment back on, circle back to what you said about the sense of agency, because I've thought a lot about what is happening here. Like mm -hmm. there's all this sort of mystical woo-woo magic stuff, but I think that's probably the core of one of the things that's really happening. I've become really intrigued more and so with Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, and he talks a lot about this attitudinal source of meaning and this sense of choice that you can have, that no matter what happens to you, that you might have a choice. And I would never sort of have the presumption to tell a cancer patient that they have a choice of how they face their cancer or their attitude because it's so overwhelming for them. But what I find during the psilocybin session, or at least what I notice, is that participants realize that they have a certain attitude towards life and their cancer that they never chose to adopt, but they actually have that. And they feel it not just sort of in a intellectual, but in a whole body experience, an emotional and, and a psychological and, and mental way. And then they can step back for that for a moment and then almost have realize they have a choice. Do I want to make this decision, have this attitude or a different one? And then a lot of the integration later is for them to look at that and make a different choice. Like this is what death is, this is what it means. And all of us face so many, uh, we're vulnerable to the, the whims of life, whether you have a cancer diagnosis or other things happen. And for them to be able to, I think you're right, to step back and to experience that actually I have some agency in how I respond to this. And it's really hard to do just with conversation. They almost have to experience it themselves and make that choice. And so I, I just wanted to second what you said. Yeah, it makes sense. And the other group I wanted to talk about is the 
clinicians, the therapists and oncologists and, mm. you know, all the doctors who support these patients. It must be really gratifying to see the, the results, to see the change in patients. Yeah, I mean, I think that has been a surprise in that, you know, to see the suffering of another person and to not do anything or to walk away, actually, it takes away that person doesn't benefit, but the person, me, the oncologist, also suffers. And to be able to meet them at their suffering is helpful to them, but it's also helpful for me. And I feel better in that. I feel more complete. And so that's been surprising. It's not just that when I've been invited to give a couple of times of talks on this, and one of my slides is really on this thing I call the collusion of denial. And what I mean by that is there's such a denial of distress, the depression that patients with cancer have. And it starts from the patient in a way they almost have to put that away in order to cope with life, to pay the bills, but also because they're not sure where they can take that suffering and people will, will be able to handle it, but they're not having to take care of that person because they have a cancer diagnosis. They don't even like to talk about it because the person's reaction, they end up consoling the person's reaction rather than them being consoled. And so they keep it to themselves. And in the center itself, everyone's busy with their task. And if you really looked at the suffering that they had, then you'd have to stop. And that makes it difficult. The oncologist, mm -hmm. it's difficult because, you know, we're taught how to give chemotherapy. We don't have classes on communication. We don't have classes on how to be with this. And, and we're busy. And so if the patient doesn't bring it up, it's easier not to talk about it. Yeah, we do it somewhat, but not full on. And so it's the cancer at the patient level, at the family level, at the oncologist level, and I think at the institution level. Because if the institution knew how deep and real this was, you would have to do something about it. And I think it goes on beyond that to, I'd say, payers. And I can get paid to give people chemotherapy and immune therapy, but I can't get paid to have a psychologist to talk to my patients about death. And I prescribe Zytiga, abiraterone for prostate cancer. It's $8,000 a month to help people live a little longer, which should be right. But I have to struggle to be able to get therapy help. And so it's the collusion is from top to bottom. But from the oncologist level, I realize how much it affects me to not be able to address that. And to walk away from someone else's suffering not only hurts them, it hurts me. And, and you're right, conversely, to address it, it, it helps me. That's a long-winded way, sorry, to answer your question. It's so gratifying and so important for clinicians not to feel powerless and just discouraged and demoralized when we face the suffering of our patients. So Manish, what's next? What are the lessons learned? Lessons learned are the distress is real. It's deeper and more real than we even initially imagined. And second is psilocybin is doing something and it needs to be studied further. As an oncologist, for over 20 years, I have never had anything in my toolbox that looks this promising. That being said, we need to do a more rigorous study in conjunction with regulators and payers to get this into patient's treatments. And so to do the really hard work of, of figuring out their exact population. So I think that's the next step of, of this work. As I'm convinced more than ever, I went in knowing the distress was real and this looked promising, it's our responsibility to take it seriously and to, and to figure out the next steps and mm -hmm. not go back to business as usual. How would you, now with the, with the move towards legalization and decriminalization, how would you compare and contrast 
the approaches of more recreational type of approaches of patients going to retreats versus getting this treatment in um, in the medical office. Yeah, I mean, I don't know as much about the legalization effort, but I can certainly speak to medicalization. I know that most of the patients that we have caught on study, they're regular people that live in suburbia and they take care of their children and they go to work and they want to interact with the medical system. That's where they're going to get their care. It's pivotal for, for me, for most of my patients that drive a distance to come or that they have a safe place within the medical system to access this care. They can't afford it without insurance companies paying for it. And it has to be through the system that they trust. And so I know access for my patients has to come through this way. If I told them to go the alternate route, it just would be too weird for them. I feel very fortunate to be at this time in history and to be working on something that brings together both my deepest personal interests and passions into the professional setting and help patients in a way that's so deeply impactful. And I look forward to, to the next steps. Well, thank you so much, Manish, for our conversation today. It was, as always, a pleasure talking to you. And I'm sure many people will have been inspired by your dedication and the quality of your work and your care for the patients. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Katja. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Everyone Has a Story Talking About Mental Health. We hope the stories you've heard today have inspired you in some way to share your own story or to listen to someone else's or to take an action that will make a difference to someone. Please subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite app. There is so much more to be done to improve mental health care. Thank you for being part of the conversation and see you on the next episode.